sitting down, please be careful as you're sitting there. I told you each week during our reach month, there will be a, another resource, another thing for you to remind you of the importance of this season. And, and March is, is a month we've set aside. It's nothing biblical. We've set it aside as a month to focus on the reality that more than half of the people in our community have yet to see Jesus as he truly is. 47% have no relationship with, with any religion at all. That's not including those who have deceived and believe they're following something true when they're not. And more than half of our community have yet to see Jesus as he is. And so the month of March, we've set aside Jesus. Who's one person that you've put in my life? One person you've put around me? One person you've put in my circle of influence for me to be the reflection of Jesus to them? This is someone that you might have in your family, might be a coworker, might be a neighbor, someone who has yet to see Jesus as you see them. On your seat, there's a bookmark. This is something you can put in your Bible, something you can put in your math book, the book that you spend the most time in. You might say, Brian, I don't read books. Great, put it on your computer screen, wedge it in there in the corner, a place you're gonna see it every day. Every day, if you've already, if Jesus has given you a name saying, all right, this is the person I want you to share your faith with this month, this month, write their name and put it there so you remember to pray for them. Remember to pray for courage and faithfulness for yourself. You're like, Brian, I don't have a name yet. Great. Put it on there and turn it on the side where it shows that empty space and let it plague you every day. <laughs> Remind you to pray, Jesus, put one person in my life that I can share Jesus to. One person. One person that you can just let them know who Jesus is and what he's done for you. I believe if we continue to do that, we're going to see God do amazing, amazing things. Let's pray together. Jesus, as a church, we've, we've been focused on this and praying, God, that you, in confidence, God, that you've already put someone in our lives. God, one person that we've always wondered why they hang around us. One person that people wonder why they still are involved in our lives. One person, God, that we've talked about inflation with, we've whined about culture about, we even worry about the Lakers together, but God, we've never talked about you. God, give us boldness. Give us courage. God, give us one name that we might be a bold witness of your glory. God, our desire, our hope, God, you just use us to be a reflection of your glory. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles or you join me in the Gospel of Mark, that's the second book of the New Testament, and that's the, the Gospel that we're following as we're following along the last week of Jesus Life. The Gospel of Mark, second book of the New Testament. If you start in Matthew, if you hit Luke, you went too far, right? If you hit Luke, just start flipping back to the left. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The Gospel of Mark, second book of the New Testament. And, and Mark has been giving us this testimony of the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it began on the first day, and it began with this great celebration, right? Jesus rode in on Jerusalem on a donkey. His disciples and the followers of Christ are laying out their coats on the, on the road in front of him. They're waving palm branches, yelling, Hosea, Hosanna, Hosanna. There's this massive celebration on that first day of the last week. It was marked with this powerful celebration, but it was also marked with a terrible misunderstanding. See, the disciples of Christ, the first day of the last week, they misunderstood why Jesus came. They thought Jesus had come to rid them from the oppression of Rome. They thought that Jesus came to establish his kingdom then, but Jesus didn't. He didn't come to rid them from the oppression of Rome. He came to rid them from the oppression of their sins. And Jesus, when he finally rode into Jerusalem, he bypassed the palaces of man, and he went straight to the temple of God. And the first day ended with a very ominous verse. You remember that? Where Jesus walked into the temple and says he just stopped and looked at everything. He observed their worship. 
But as man appears and looks at the outward, at the exterior of a person, Jesus looks at a man's soul. And Jesus stood there in the temple, watching, observing, evaluating not just what they do, but who they were. And after he saw everything he wanted to see, he simply turned around and went home. That was the first day. The first day of the last week. The second day of the last week began with a troublesome tone. You remember that? It says this, Jesus woke up on the wrong side of the bed. He woke up troubled with what he saw the night before. That second day began with this fiery spirit of Jesus. He is in the, and the disciples were heading back to Jerusalem and they encountered a fig tree. A fig tree on the outside that looked healthy, that looked fruitful. It had leaves and fig trees. When they have leaves, it means they're supposed to have fruit. So Jesus sees this leafy tree and he's expecting it to be, ha- to be fruitful. And when he gets closer to it and he begins to evaluate it, he realizes that tree has been false advertising. It's acting as if it's fruitful. It's behaving as if it's healthy. But it's not. Jesus cursed the fig tree. Said, may no one eat from you again. And, and when he saw it the next morning, the fig tree had withered up, had withered from the roots up. As if to make sure everyone understood that he expects fruit. From the fig tree, Jesus went into the temple. That second day, went from the fig tree to the temple, started flipping tables and kicking out leaders. And make no mistake, Jesus wasn't there to purify their worship. He was there to judge it. He was there to curse it. Jesus went in on the second day, saw a fig tree that was leafy and healthy on the outside, but fruitless. And he went to a temple that was much the same way. And when he was done cursing the temple, They turned around and went home. And that's the context for the third day, the third day of the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, third day of the last week. Now, if I was Jesus on the third day, after I cursed the temple, he'd already been to the temple two days in a row. On the third day, I'd probably give the temple a break. I'd let things simmer down. I'd let things cool down, but not Jesus. Jesus, this is his last week. He's got stuff to do. He's got points to make. Jesus is running out of time, and so Jesus goes straight back to the temple for the third day in a row, right into the belly of the ministry of God. And this is what happened. If you have your Bibles, join me in Mark chapter 11. Let's see how that second day began. Turn to Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Mark chapter 11. Verse 27, Jesus on that third day comes into the temple and the religious leaders are ready for him. Like Jesus doesn't even fully get into the temple. Look what happens. Verse 27, Mark eleven twenty-seven. They came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, man, they just didn't, they didn't even give that guy a chance. Last time they gave him a chance, he messed up the place. Chief priest, as he, as he was walking into the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? That term authority. Me, they're asking, what power, what jurisdiction, who gave you the responsibility? Who are you that you get to come in and judge us? Who are you? You get to go to the temple of God and you think you can curse it? You think you can judge it? You think you can reprimand it? Hey, Jesus, who put you in charge? And after a very coy response, Jesus goes into a parable. That's in Mark chapter 12. Where Jesus gives this teaching, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1. He says this, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. He said, a man planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. I mean, this owner, he put a lot of money and time into this property. It's pristine. It's perfect. 
Verse 2, at harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. But the vine growers took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed again. The owner sent another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. Verse 5, and he sent another. And that one they killed. And so it went with many others, beating some and killing others. Verse 6, he had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. Big biblical butt right there, verse 7. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scriptures, the stones the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Man, just another powerful teaching from Jesus. Very clear, Jesus didn't come to purify their worship. Jesus came to judge it, to curse it, to eradicate it from that parable. Jesus had a few more discussions, a few more brouhaha's with other leaders on that third day when it came to the end of the third day. When the end of the day had come and they began to leave the temple, this happened. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. Look at what it says. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As he, as Jesus, was going out of the temple, the end of the day, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, surprise, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I mean, Jesus had just spent better of three days cursing the temple, judging the temple. It looks healthy on the outside, but it's fruitless on the inside. I mean, the disciples have to be catching on what Jesus is doing. But as they leave, they're looking back over the temple. It's like, man, what a great campus. And it was a fantastic campus. The, the temple area was built over decades. A portion of it was overlaid with gold so that when the sun rose, it would gleam off the, off the temple. And what many believe was just this blinding light in the evening, it would glow the sunset. The temple of God truly was a light on a hill. It was the dwelling place of God. It was the heartbeat of ministry. It was the instrument of worship. And Jesus is coming in. He keeps saying all these things about it. And disciples are leaving. And one says, man, can it be that bad? Look how great it is. Jesus, it can't be all bad. It's got a great campus, beautiful buildings, Jesus, there's a lot of life inside of it. The courtyards are full. We have to park our donkeys two blocks away just to get in. Jesus, really, are you sure? I mean, they were evaluating the ministry on the outside. Don't we do the same? Jesus is looking at fig trees. He's looking at temple. He's looking at the heart. Disciples say, it can't be all that bad. It's got a great big campus. Man, there's a lot of activity. They do a lot of things. It's crowded. Evidently, those things aren't impressive to Jesus or to God. And I wonder... Maybe they shouldn't be so important to us. Because look what Jesus said next. Once they're talking about how great the temple looks, look what he says in verse 2. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. On the third day, you can't mistake the message of Jesus now. First day, it was misunderstood. Second day, he started talking about fig trees and flipping tables. Maybe you missed it. Third day, you can't miss it, right? Jesus says, okay, let me be clear. That great campus, gone. The instrument of worship, gone. The light on a hill, gone. 
It will all be destroyed. Can you imagine? This was the dwelling place of God. This was the instrument of worship. This was, this was the welcoming place of all peoples. Now the disciples begin to think, wow, okay, well, if God's getting rid of his temple, then he must be ready to build his palace. If he's getting rid of the house of God, maybe he's going to start building the home of David. And so they say, go along a little bit down the road with the curse of Jesus reverberating in their ears. They get farther down the path. Now they're on the Mount of Olives overlooking the temple, taking a break. This is what happens. Look at verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, Andrew were questioning him privately. The inner circle. I mean, Jesus made this astounding statement. Look, in case you all missed it, the temple, it's judged. The temple's cursed. Temple's gone. They go down the path a little bit. The inner circle come to Jesus. Jesus, give us the inner scoop, huh? Look what they said. Tell us, when when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Hey, Jesus, you can tell us. We won't tell anyone. When's the temple gonna be destroyed and when are you gonna build your palace? When are you gonna establish the new political power? When are you going to restore us to our position of control? And what I want to share with you the rest of the day is the response of Jesus. See, the way he responds is if he doesn't want you to know when. He essentially ignores all their questions. As if Jesus doesn't think you need to know when it's going to happen, he, needs to, he wants you to know how to live until it happens. This is if Jesus doesn't need you to know when the end times will be. He wants you to know how to be faithful until they become. And that's what he gives you in Mark. That's why I love the perspective of the Olivet Discourse in Mark. It gets outside all the weeds, all the dates, all the arguments. And Mark says, you know what Jesus mostly cared about? how you live until he comes back. Everyone wants to know when, when, when. According to Mark, Jesus is like, don't worry about when. Instead of answering their questions, Jesus gives two things, a series of warnings and a promise. I want to show them to you. It's on the third day. Beginning of the third day, they come into the temple The religious leaders are waiting for him. Jesus, in the clearest way possible, you can't mistake what he's saying. The temple's judged. The temple's cursed. And the disciples are like, sweet, great. That means you're going to build a palace. When are you going to do it? What's it going to look like? And Jesus, seemingly ignoring their question, begins this way. He begins with a warning. We know it's a warning because of the first word he uses. And I'm hoping you're more awake than first service. You can learn this term. Listen, verse 5, he says, And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be frightened. Those things must take place. But this is not yet the end, for nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Jesus says, listen, there's something you need to know. The world is going to go bananas. But then he gives a warning, that first word. My Bible says, see to it. In the Greek, it's the term blepete. Blepete, it's a command, it's a directive. A term blepete means see to it. Pay attention, watch out, open your eyes, be on guard. Hey, Jesus, when's it going to happen? What's your palace going to look like? And Jesus just turns the corner and says, forget that warning. Don't be misled. There's going to come time where the world's going to go bananas and the false preachers come. Don't be misled. Don't be led astray. Don't be seduced onto a different path. Be careful, be mindful, 
Be watchful before you know it. When the world goes bananas, people are going to be telling you stuff and you're going to get all path. You're going to end up going the wrong way. You're going to get seduced away from the direction of God. And we don't have to look very far into the past to see that that's true, don't we? Just a couple years ago, everything in life that we recognized, that we counted on, just stopped. We're stuck at home. We didn't even know if we were going to live or die. I mean, toilet paper nearly became the currency in our country. We were this close to buying things with toilet paper. And do you remember what happened to the church? It was the most divided and divisive we have ever been in my lifetime. Because in the midst of all the questions, in the midst of all the struggles, we as Christians, we follow people. We don't follow God. During that time, when all hell was breaking loose on earth, all these people started coming in with different messages, different teachings, different opinions of what God had for them. And as Christians, we were spun. Who do we believe? Who do we follow? What do we do? Jesus warned his disciples, Jesus, when's it going to happen? Jesus said, don't worry about that. Blepete. Watch out. Be aware. The world's going to go bananas. And when it does, all these false teachers are going to come. Watch out. Because before you know it, you're going to be led astray. And this warning of Jesus must have really struck a chord. Because it's found elsewhere in Scripture. Look at what the Apostle Peter said to the early church. This is in 1 Peter. He says, false prophets are also arose among the people. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. He continues that many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Peter told the early church, be careful. In the midst of persecution, he said, there's going to be false teachers. They're going to be leading you astray. It wasn't just him. How about the Apostle John? The Apostle John said something similar. He said, beloved, my friends, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world. Peter, be careful. Watch out for false teachers. John, be careful. Watch out for false teachers. How about the Apostle Paul? Look what he said. This is a blunt statement. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Examine it. Test it. Evaluate it. The disciples came to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, okay, we got it. You're judging worship. When are you going to establish your kingdom? Give us the dates. Give us the steps. We want to sit and watch it all happen. She says, don't worry about that. You worry about the false teachers. Watch out. When the world goes bananas, test everything. It says Jesus knew us. That when life gets hard, we follow people, not God. She says, test everything to the word of God. Man, this has got to be our authority. This has got to be our guide. This has got to be our direction. And when the world goes bananas, when the world gets murky, when truth gets hard to discern, this needs to be our guide. Jesus isn't done, though. First warning he gives them, it says, listen, don't be misled. But he gives, he goes straight into another warning. And we know it because verse 9, you want to know the first word? Blepete. Blepete, close. A for effort. Watch out. Be on guard. Keep your eyes open. Look what he says, verse 9. Be on guard 
For they will deliver you to the courts, you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. A father is child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures the end, he will be saved. Man, I love this. This wasn't what the disciples were asking for at all, was it? Hey, Jesus, we're expecting the good news. Jesus said, no, 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 you don't need to know that. Plapete, watch out, be mindful, be aware, keep your eyes open. Don't be misled and don't be worried. Jesus says, listen, there's going to come a time where persecution comes. You'll be arrested. Some of you will be incarcerated. Others of you, because of the gospel, your family will just come unglued. Still others of you will be beaten and murdered and hated for the name of Jesus. But I want to make sure you get the understanding of what Jesus is saying. He's just saying, listen, this hard times, these are going to come. You want to know when? I'm not giving it to you. As if Jesus is more concerned with how we live our lives versus how he does his plans. Don't be misled. Number two, he says, don't be worried. Look at what he says, verse 11. Right in the midst of all of this drama, all this fear, look what he says. When they, are, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you're to say. That term, do not worry beforehand. Don't look down the road at all the twists and turns and start freaking out ahead of time. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough problems of his own. Remember Jesus saying that? Don't look down the road and freak out about what you think you see. Why? For it is not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, don't worry about that stuff because God's with you. Man, we're so good, aren't we? Brian, I look down culture and I see these signs of what's going to happen and we're so filled with angst in our heart about what we think might happen a decade from now. Jesus says, stop that. Don't worry about stuff beforehand. Why? God's with you. Brian, I'm not just worried about me, I'm worried about my kids. I don't, what, what type of world my kids going to live in a decade from now? My grandchildren, I'm, I'm not worried about me, I'm worried about them. You know what? Jesus will be with them too. Amen. That promise, God is with you, it's one of the most notable and numerous promises throughout Scripture. When Moses was dead, Joshua inherited all the problems of this rebellious people and they had the most difficult challenge ahead of them conquering the promised land God's message to Joshua Joshua go do this impossible task oh by the way I'll be with you wherever you go it's something King David knew King David wrote, Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. Man, he leads me in green pastures. He, beside quiet waters, he restores my soul. But even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is King David. Man, if anyone deserved the right to not walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it would be King David. He's the greatest king of all of Israel. He was a man after God's own heart, the Bible says. But King David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David's like, that's right, I have hard times too. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because I got all these armies behind me. Because I have the storehouse of riches. No. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because God, you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even when I'm surrounded by my enemies, God doesn't panic. He cooks. You prepare a table before me in my presence, in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Man, Joshua, King David, Jesus gave this promise to disciples multiple times, even right before he ascended into heaven. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus talking to his disciples, listen, it's going to get crazy. Some of you, your family is going to disassemble. Some of you, you're going to end up in prison. Some of you might end up being beaten. You're going to be hated because of me. Don't be worried. God's with you. God's with you. And I was thinking this week, where do you need to claim that promise in your life? I know some of you are going through some horrendous stuff. Some of you are really going through health issues, family issues, financial struggles, issues of the heart, issues of the mind. Man, you, some of you are just going through it. And I've talked to some of you, and I wish as the pastor, God gives me ability to wave my arms and make it disappear. I can't. All I can do is remind you that God says in the midst of it, I am with you. And then do my best to be with you in the midst of it myself. And that's why being a part of community, being part of a small group, a Sunday school class, men's, women's Bible study is so important. So this body of believers can walk with you in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. Let us walk with you in the midst of it. So I promise you, as Jesus did his disciples, there will be hard times. When there are, don't be led astray. When they are, don't be worried. God's with you. One last warning. It says, don't be misled. Don't be worried. Number three, don't be surprised. Well, he says, verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord has shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ. Behold, here he is. Do not believe him for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect but take heed, behold, surprise, I have told you everything in advance. I love that. Jesus is like, okay, I've told you everything you need to know. And if I'm the same, you haven't told me anything. I asked you, when are you going to do it? You didn't answer me. Just like, this is what you're going to get. Now you know everything you need to know. Hard times are coming. Don't be led astray. Hard times are coming. Don't be worried. The Holy Spirit's with you. Hard times are coming. All hell's going to break loose on the earth. I mean, that's what he's describing. Verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation, man, that term, that phrase is supposed to draw us back to what the prophet Daniel said about a foul and abhorrent thing that will desecrate and devastate the temple. And we see that phrase, and all of a sudden, Christians start arguing, oh, what's he talking about? When the temple's destroyed in 70 AD, is he talking about when the temple's going to be destroyed after tribulation? Like, what? what? And all of a sudden, disciples start arguing about what Jesus is talking about, and we miss his point. Right in the middle of that section, when he's talking about all, hell's, all hell breaking loose on earth, look at verse 21. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, for the sake of his children, he shortened the days. Even in the midst of all hell breaking loose on earth, who's in charge? God. Man, Jesus given clear message in the middle of his last week. He's come not to declare freedom from the oppression of Rome, but he's come to judge the instrument of worship. He came to curse and judge the temple. Why? Because it's just like the fig tree. 
It's healthy on the outside. It's all leafy and boasting fruit. But when you get up to it, when Jesus came to evaluate it, nothing. So that's how the temple is. Because of that, it's judged. Because Jesus expects fruit. Disciples say, okay, well, when are you going to set up your palace then? Jesus said, don't worry about that. Produce fruit. You see, all these warnings is equipping his disciples to not be like the fig tree, to not be like the temple. Man, when hard times come, produce fruit. Don't get led astray. When persecution comes, produce fruit. You can do it. How do you know? Holy Spirit's with you. Joshua produced fruit. King David produced fruit. Disciples produced fruit. Even when the abomination of desolation comes, even when all hell breaks loose on earth, don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. God's still in charge. He's still in control. He's still got it covered. And then Jesus ends it and says, that's all you need to know. That's the end of the warnings. Jesus, when are you going to do it? Give us the date. Tell us the deeds. We won't tell anyone. Shh. Jesus says, I'll tell you everything you need to know. Don't be led astray. Don't worry. Don't be surprised. And then the passage continues, and Jesus shifts gears. We know he shifts gears because there's a big biblical but right there, verse 24. All of a sudden, Jesus is done with warnings. He goes into the promise. It says this, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers that are in heavens will be shaken, verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. He says, just when you think God's abandoned us, just when you think everything's at its darkest, boom, that's when Jesus returns. And then he gives three powerful truths about this promise. Number one, says you won't be forgotten. Look what happens when he comes, verse 27, after he comes, and then when he comes down, and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from everywhere, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the heaven. You will not be left behind. You will not be forgotten. You will not be missed. If you're a child of God, he will not miss you. He will not lose you. He will not misplace you, and he will not overpass you. When Jesus comes back, you will not be forgotten. The question is, are you with Jesus? If you're with Jesus, when Jesus comes back, he says, I'm going to come back to judge the living and the dead, separate the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the forgiven from the judged. Forgiveness is for everyone until Jesus returns. She says, if you're mine, you will not be forgotten. I got you. I have not lost you. I have not misplaced you. I know exactly where you are. I've been with you the whole time, and when I return, I will get you. He continues, verse 28, says, now learn the parable of the fig tree. Here we go again, another thing with the fig tree, right? Jesus is on fire with this fig tree. Learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But look at verse 32. But at the end of that, but of that day or hour, no one knows. He says, you'll be able to tell the seasons, right? You'll be able to tell, ooh, I think it's getting close. I think, you ever hear people saying that? Oh, it's going to be any day. Can I just tell you, for the last four generations, that's what every generation has thought. 
Oh, I hope and pray. Jesus, come quickly. I'm good to go. I don't know if I'm getting old or grumpy. Well, I don't know if I'm getting mature, but I'm more and more ready to like, come, Lord Jesus, quickly come. I'm good to go. But that doesn't seem to be the concern of Jesus, is it? He's not concerned that we know when he comes back. He's concerned on how faithful we leave until he comes back. Jesus says, learn about the fig tree. You'll begin to tell, man, this certainly seems like the type of season Jesus would come back. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Look at what he says. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Jesus is like, look, I don't even know. Jesus, when are you going to do it? When's the day? What's going to happen? Jesus is like, look, I don't even know. Here's what I think is funny, though. Is that throughout history, there's all these dudes that find this special numerical code in the Bible. Like, oh, I think I know when Jesus is coming back. Jesus wrote this. And Jesus didn't know. He's like, look, I'm waiting for the Father to decide, just like you are. That's a part of this promise. He's like, look, I'm coming back. I'm not sure when. I'm waiting just like you are. Jesus says, I'll faithfully do my job in heaven. You faithfully do your job on earth. And we're going to wait. Until the father of all creation decides whom we all choose to submit our lives to. But there's one last thing. So what do we do, Brian? Jesus, if you're judging it all and all we need to do is focus on how we live our life, what's that supposed to look like? What are we supposed to be about? What do we do in the meantime while we're waiting? Glad you asked. Jesus answered it. Verse 20, or 33. Jesus says, I'm coming back. You aren't forgotten. You aren't alone. But while you're waiting, you aren't powerless. You're not some weakened vessel of sin just sitting here waiting, hovering in church, waiting for Jesus to return. No, no, look what he says. Take heed. Want to guess what Greek word that is? Leslie? Blepete. Blepete. Take heed. Open your eyes. Be alert. Don't fall asleep. Wake up. Man, it's so easy to just fall asleep in church and just huddle together and wait for Jesus to come, have our prophecy conferences and just wait. I want to make sure you understand what Jesus says. He says, take heed. That's a command. It's a directive. Take heed. Keep on the alert. Look what he says. For you do not know when the appointed time will come. It's like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Well, what do we do? She's like, well, picture this. When the owner of a business leaves on vacation, he gives everyone a job. And look at this. He says he puts all of his slaves in charge. That term, in charge, you have authority, power, responsibility, jurisdiction. You know what's funny? That's the same word that the religious leaders asked Jesus. Hey, what authority gave you to do this? It's the same word Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. Same word Jesus says, now all authority has been given to you. You've been given a task. Kind of see Jesus, you are hereby empowered. You are in charge to do my work on earth while you wait for my return. Everyone's been given a task. You might be like, well, I don't know what my task is. Here's generally what it is. Remember this? We learned this, Acts 1.8. We spent a whole almost year on this. Jesus said this, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. And you've been given power, authority, responsibility. You've been placed in charge to be my witnesses, to tell people about the saving power of Jesus Christ. Man, some of you have been placed in families You've been placed in charge over a family, children, grandchildren, to be his witness. Some of you have been given a business to be his witness. 
Some of you have been given a ministry in this church, outside of church, to be his witness. But Jesus says, each one of my people, they've been put in charge. I'm not the only one in charge. We. God put us in charge to be about his work until he returns. And Jesus made this bold statement. Temple, gone. House of God, out. Instrument of worship, bupkis. You're now the temple. You're now the priests. You're now the hands and feet of Jesus. Each and every one of you have been placed in charge to do this work. Look how he ends at verse 35. Therefore, he says, because of all this work, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the hour is coming, whether in the evening at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning in case he should come suddenly find you asleep. Look how he ends, verse 37. What I say to you, I say to all. Be on the alert. And Jesus, for three days, has been judging and cursing the temple. And the disciples finally can't miss it. What's the signs? What's it going to look like? God, when are you going to build your palace? Jesus says, forget all that. You don't need to know that. What you need to know is how to be faithful until I return. Hard times are coming. Don't be misled. Don't follow men. Follow God. Number two, don't be worried. Hard times are coming. God's with you. Number three, don't be surprised. God's still in control. Even in the midst of when hell's breaking loose on earth, God's still in control. And he will come back. I guess my two questions for you, number one, are you ready? Jesus says, I'm coming back to judge the living and the dead. Are you ready for that? If you're here today, you're like, man, I'm not sure. I don't know where I stand with Jesus. I don't know what side I'm on. I'm all confused. I'd love to talk to you after church. I'd love to help you have confidence in your position with God like David did, like Paul did, like Peter did, like so many people. That you can truly say in the honesty of your heart, come Lord Jesus, quickly come, I'm ready to go. But I'm guessing the majority of you are saying, no, Brian, I, I'm right with Jesus. Then my question is, how do you need to be faithful to the Lord while you wait? Jesus' concern in Mark chapter 13 isn't that we have all the right answers of when Jesus is coming. Jesus' main concern is that we're equipped to be faithful to the Lord until he returns. Maybe for some of you, it's time to be about the Lord's work in your life. Maybe for others of you, it's time to quit worrying about the future and trust it to the power of God. Man, if God can create everything in a spoken word, he can handle the future of Kooky, California. Or maybe it's time that you stop following a man, stop following an author, stop following a podcast, and you get your nose in the word of God yourself. I mean, people lead people astray. But the word of God endures forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we're here. God, and many of us confess to you. Man, it's so easy to get distracted. It is so easy to get discouraged. And if we're honest, God, it's so easy. We'd much prefer to just watch the signs and wait for you to come back and fix it all. So Jesus, I ask that you teach us like you taught your disciples so long ago. God, protect us from worrying about signs and symbols and dates. Help us to be focused on being faithful to you today. God, I pray for those people who are worried who feel like they're in the valley of the shadow of death. God, will you give them what you gave David? 
that they would not fear, they would trust you. God, for those who struggle to see your sovereign control in the midst of all the madness of the world, God, I pray they hear your words, that you are with them. God, if there's someone here today or online that is yet to see you, they have yet to have this confident relationship with you. God, I pray that you would give them, you open their eyes and allow them to see you and God, give them humility to reach out to you even now. God, give them courage as they just ask for a new beginning, as they raise up their brokenness and their failures, their guilt and their shame. And Jesus, I ask you to respond as you've promised, that you would forgive them of all their failures, cleanse them of all of their sins, that you'd fill them with your spirit and you give them what you've promised, a peace that's beyond human comprehension as you guard their heart and their mind. And Jesus, I pray you guide them from this day on in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. God, we simply ask as a body, as a family, God, give us what we need that we might bring you glory. Protect us from being a a leafy fig tree that looks healthy on the outside but fruitless on the inside. Help us as individuals and as a church to bring you fruit for your glory, for your kingdom, and your power. Pray all things in Jesus' name. Amen.